In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Oh, what a joy to be here with you again. It's like old times for me. Some of you I know quite well, others not so much. But I hope that will change in the days ahead. Uh, my name is Bill Sharp. I'm a priest at the Cathedral of Holy Cross in Loganville, Georgia, which is the cathedral church of this diocese. And I had the had the great privilege for a number of years now of serving with uh, now Bishop and Archbishop Foley Beach, although we don't get to see him much anymore, <laughs> as you might imagine. But we have several assisting bishops that help out with all the diocesan duties that seem to crop up constantly. Um, But I want to focus uh, this morning on, initially on this gospel message and then a tangent that I just can't get out of my head. So you'll see where that goes in a moment. I see there's no clock. Um, yeah, Sheila, do your, your thing, okay. All right. <laughs> the gospel of Mark is the gospel message for today in the lectionary readings. We have been progressing along, and so we've read the preliminary things uh, in the gospel of Mark. Before this, um, the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner sent to prepare the way of the Lord, uh, the baptism of Jesus, Indeed, uh, as we compare all the Gospels, he's introduced to us in that as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The temptation of Jesus also precedes this event. It's preparing him to face difficulties that are ahead. And then the theme of his preaching, which is critically important, He came in the wake of John the Baptist's imprisonment into Galilee. And as the scripture said, he came preaching the gospel. And he was saying, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Another place, it's in your midst. Another place, it is within you. The kingdom of God has arrived, would be the message. And then he says, repent. Now, I'll come back to the kingdom of God in a moment. But let's just look briefly at this passage that's before us today because Jesus now comes to the synagogue at Capernaum. Now, 
Capernaum is, of course, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Those who, of you who have been there. By the way, how many have been to Capernaum? Several. Okay. You probably visited the synagogue, the remains of the synagogue there, as I have. He came to that synagogue on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath day. But now, why Capernaum? Well, Capernaum is the, was sort of a hub of traffic in the region. East and west corridor went through Capernaum. North and south went through Capernaum. There was a lot of traffic there, a lot of convergence, a lot of, of um, buying and selling and so forth that went on in the region, a big economy if you could call it that in those days. There was a Roman garrison there in Jesus' day because of that. It was a central place, principal city in Galilee, Capernaum. And Jesus made it, by the way, as you, as you probably well know, his headquarters, his, his uh, ministry home there in Capernaum for his ministry in Galilee. You say, well, he was from Nazareth. Why did he choose Capernaum? Well, for some of the reasons I've just said. But also, you remember what happened when he went to the synagogue at Nazareth. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. But here he is at Capernaum. It doesn't say what he told them. It doesn't give us the details of what he said and taught. But what he taught was powerful and it was different. And they were amazed. They were amazed at Jesus because of this. And they kept saying, and we find this in other places as well, that it was so different for one reason, because he taught with authority. He, thought, he taught as one who had the authority to do so. He was not like the scribes. What did they do? Well, they compared what this rabbi said with what that rabbi said and this other rabbi, and then they said, now let me tell you why I think this is the right way, and et cetera, et cetera. So they were just pulling together a lot of old stuff about the law, but Jesus came and he spoke new and fresh words about it with authority that they didn't miss. He wasn't quoting somebody else. Actually, he was. You know who? The Father. Okay? He spoke what the Father gave him to speak. So they perceived it in amazement as having authority. We don't know the details of what he spoke. But based upon the previous lead-in to this, and what we know he was teaching about his entire ministry, it was the kingdom of God that he spoke about. So we have that authority thing that, that touches off this passage to begin with. Then this thing in the middle where, where he casts out an unclean spirit from a man and then back to authority at the end of the passage. So we got this authority sandwich going on with on teaching the word with, and in the middle is this exorcism 
Now, if we read the scriptures carefully, and we don't even have to read them carefully to know this, Jesus had authority to do a lot of things that nobody else had authority to do. And he came and did those things. In fact, he demonstrated the fact that he had authority by doing various miraculous things along the way. This being one case. Now, what I want you to see here in this passage is that the folks in the synagogue, the people that were there, were amazed at him, but didn't have a clue who he was. The demons, on the other hand, knew exactly who he was. They weren't amazed. They were terrified. Because they knew what this meant. And they knew who he was. And they have been expecting this someday to happen. The kingdom of God had broken out. Indeed, God's plan was being revealed. Now, when I think about God's plan, I usually think back to some old seminary work I did, and, and I remember one particularly memorable thing was uh, Dr. Walter Kaiser, who laid out what he called God's tripartite plan, what he was up to and what he was about, God's tripartite plan. It's simple, and you know these words well. I will be their God, they will be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of them. And when you think about the whole scope of the Bible, from beginning to end, isn't that what God is about? So here comes this amazing one who speaks with authority, and guess who he is? Emmanuel. God with us. Now, admittedly, this is a foretaste of what we're going to see in the end. You know, we have this, we have this whole, as, as N.T. Wright calls it, arc of the Bible. God creates. All along, his intention is to create a righteous people over which he can rule as king in a kingdom that is his own. He creates. But then comes the fall. Didn't catch him by surprise. He knew what he was going to do all along. But in the end, he's going to bring it back to what he intended. The consummation of all things. I like what, I don't like a lot what this guy says, but I like this. Hans Kung said the kingdom of God is creation healed. Creation healed. He's going to put it 
in exactly the order and way that he intended it to be all along. That takes a lot of doing. So here comes Emmanuel in the midst of all of this. You know, By the way, the Jewish concept of, of, of all of this in time is simply this, a two-phase two thing. This present age dominated by, guess what? Demons and ungodliness and unrighteousness and the wrath of God. And then there is the age to come. When God will set right all that he intended, all that he, he planned to do, all that he had promised to do. So here we are in this present age, and the age to come breaks in with Emmanuel, with Jesus Christ, who's come now with authority to do all manner of things that are kingdom, uh, kingdom blessings. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. The blind are given sight. He casts out demons. You can go on. He has authority to do these things, and he proves that he has authority to do them by either doing them before their eyes or doing something else miraculous that makes it clear that he's not just speaking words. So the people are amazed that they don't know who he is. The only ones in the room that know who he is, the demons. And they're terrified. In fact, when you see Jesus encountering demons throughout the New Testament, you see that they are terrified. And they scream in their terror and cry out. But you know, the first half of Mark's gospel, they're the only ones who know who Jesus is. Others are amazed, but they don't know who he is. Augustine of Hippo made a lot to do of that. And he described the difference between the demon's confession of faith, not confession of faith, but confession about who Christ is. And we see some of it here. You're the son of God. And he compares that with Peter's confession of faith, which comes later on. And they say almost the same thing. But there's a big difference. You should meditate on this sometime. What is the difference between the demons confessing Christ as the Son of God and Peter and others confessing Christ, you and me confessing Christ as the Son of God? There's something quite different. And it's in here. There are probably a thousand ways I could go in this sermon with different things. I will restrain myself. You said happily. <laughs> By the way, a week ago, 
Sheila and I and many others from the Cathedral Holy Cross and other places that we've, that we've known other Anglicans converged on Charleston, South Carolina. Were any of you in Charleston about a week ago? No. Unfortunately, you weren't there. I didn't see any of you anyway. It was the 10th Mere Anglicanism Conference. And this slate of speakers, when I saw what it was, I couldn't wait to sign up and get there. It was a marvelous conference, probably the best I've ever been to. It started off with N.T. Wright. And boy, did he set the stage for this thing. By the way, the subject of the whole conference was salt and light. How Christianity and the church should confront secularism in our world today. I wish I could tell you everything that N.T. Wright said, but that would take uh, forever. Every sentence he says is packed to it enough for a whole sermon. He entitled his presentation, How Scripture Outflanks Secularism, subtitled, The Biblical Challenge to the World and to the Church. Now, that's an awfully big, deep subject. But what he did is he honed in upon, upon something that relates here. And that has to do with the kingdom of God. Because he pointed out how the church has so misunderstood and not passed on the right understanding of the kingdom of God. Instead, we have engaged in this, it's been called by different things in different ages, but we've engaged in this thing that kind of separates God from what goes on down here. Yeah, God's there. Kind of like the old deist, you know. He, God created everything, and it was like a He's the watchmaker, you know, he wound up the clock and it runs. But there's too much of that that's coming to the church in the last half century to the point that we are producing widespread now in the church across all the different branches. We have produced what at least one has called, Wright calls it something a little bit different, Oz Guinness who was there calls it something a little bit different, Alistair McGrath was there. He, he called it something a little bit different. Um, what's another one? Who else was there? Bishop Michael Nazarelli. They all called it something a little bit different and showed how it fit together differently. But I'll take just a moment to tell you one that is in recent times has come out this analysis that you may have heard of that boils it down to this. We are producing... MTD, moralistic, therapeutic deists. That's the main product coming out of churches, broad spectrum church, in the, in the Western world. Moralistic, therapeutic deists, very briefly. Moralistic in the sense that, yeah, we ought to do good rather than bad, whatever that means. 
We ought to be good, we ought not to be bad. Uh, it's expressed sometimes in more vulgar language, but don't be a jerk. You can think of some other things. That's the moralistic side that sort of is ingrained in young folks and middle-aged folks and so forth, and some of the older folks. Moralistic side of things. Therapeutic. What is that all about? Well, church and God and interaction with the two is of value because, and mostly only because, it makes me feel good. I feel better when I go to church. I feel better when I get involved in things related to the church. Therapeutic. Deist, deistic. God's there, but so what? God's there, but it's almost irrelevant to how I live my daily life. God's there, but I got to do what I got to do. We have produced a couple of generations of moralistic, therapeutic deists. Widespread problem in Christianity. Now, N.T. Wright now goes back to earlier philosophies. For example, he, he talks about secularism as having is having a, a, a renewal of what we used to call Epicureanism. It's kind of that separation between God and man, between religion and man. Uh, God or gods are there, but they're not impacting my life. And I go on and do my own thing, and I sort of live my life on my own and do what I think is best. Um, that's one of the main problems that has attacked the Western world in secularism, is this concept of Epicureanism um, that goes along with what I was saying about moralistic, therapeutic deists. I don't have time to tell you all that Wright said, but he had some good stuff. And when, when in March, about the middle of March, I recommend that you go to a website, just Google mere Anglicanism, and you will have available to you there some of these great, all of these great presentations. Don't miss N.T. Wright's. That's not to belittle Oz Guinness or, or um, um, Alistair McGrath. Great presentations, Michael Nazareth. Had a couple of Catholic speakers there that were excellent on this subject of church and, and secularism. But it's the, it's the kingdom of God that strikes me in all of this. Because each one of them finally comes down to the place where they are stressing that the kingdom of God is here. It's not something off in the distance. It's not something that someday the kingdom of God will arrive. Yes, there is going to be a fulfillment of everything. There's going to be a consummation of everything. But that's not what Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of God. He was teaching that it's here now. It's with us, near to us, in us. It is the presence of God here. 
And what's going on is that in the kingdom of God, you know, that's wherever the rule and reign of God is in the hearts of men. What's going on here, and we pray it in the Lord's Prayer every time, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's not a prayer about the end of the age so much as it is a prayer about right now. The kingdom of God, which is in us in seed form, developing in some faster than others, is where the will of God is taking over. As a citizen of the kingdom of God, I am to submit my will to God's will. And to the extent that I do that, the kingdom of God comes forth from me all the more strong and from us. We know the phrase kingdom of God, but familiarity doesn't mean understanding. And I would challenge you to examine this on your own and to think through it more. Um, gosh, so much I want to say about this. Um, there is a, there are various dimensions of understanding historically about the kingdom of God. I don't have time to develop these. But there's a Christological dimension. That is to say the kingdom is not a thing. It's not a geographical dimension like worldly kingdoms. It's a person. The term kingdom of God is itself a veiled Christology. It is, and here's a quote from one of my favorite guys writing on certain subjects, this being one of them, uh, Benedict XVI. By the way in which he speaks of the kingdom of God, Jesus leads men to realize the overwhelming fact that in him, God himself is present among them, that he is God's presence. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will dwell in the midst of them. There's a mystical dimension. The kingdom of God resides in the heart of, of man, you and me. One of the church fathers, well, you might call him a church father, Origen. Those who pray for the coming of the kingdom of God pray without any doubt for the kingdom of God that they contain in themselves. And they pray that this kingdom might bear fruit and attain to its fullness. And there's an ecclesiastical dimension historically. The kingdom of God is in the here and now, present in and through the church. And it's a mixed reality. We can say a lot about the visible and the invisible church and how this relates, but it'll be perfectly realized at the end of history. Not so much now. This current mixed state can be seen as the church on earth which now grows in the field of the world with both weeds and wheat until the harvest when Christ says he will tell the reapers 
gather the weeds first. Bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barns. Now think, as you're thinking about that and the mixture that we find in the church, remember the difference between the demon saying, Christ is the Son of God. And Peter saying, Christ is the Son of God. Admittedly, the term kingdom of God is somewhat complex. It spans the Old and New Testament, refers to several things at once. But at its core, the kingdom is fundamentally about salvation. It's neatly summarized in this sentence. In a word, the kingdom of God is the manifestation and realization of God's plan of salvation in all its fullness. Wherever God rules over the human heart as king, there the kingdom of God is established. It's a new life. And it's a new way of life. The will of God being manifested in you and me. That's the kingdom of God. tell you one, one last little illustration. Before the days in Indochina when the French came in and colonized, there were kings, minor kings, but there were kings around. And let me tell you how they, how they determined how they would figure out who was in what kingdom. Because in the border areas, they were all mixed, kind of like the church. Now, the kings of Laos and Vietnam, they reached an agreement on taxation in the border areas. And here's how they did it. Those who ate short-grained rice built their houses on stilts and decorated them with Indian-style serpents were considered Laotians. Didn't matter where they lived. What side of the border? On the other hand, those who ate long-grain rice built their houses on the ground and decorated them with Chinese-style dragons were considered Vietnamese. The exact location of a person's home was not what determined his or her nationality. Instead, each person belonged to the kingdom whose cultural values he or she exhibited. So it is with us. We live in the world, but as part of God's kingdom, we are to live according to his kingdom standards and values. Thy will be done. Here comes Jesus teaching and preaching this kind of stuff. And they were amazed. And the demon. Are you more amazed than terrified at this, I hope? Okay. Jesus came 
proclaiming the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom, saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here now. Jesus is here now, where he rules in the hearts and minds of people. There is the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.